This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. You are listening to a section of the LibriVox NaNoWriMo project, in which a number of LibriVox volunteers write and record a whole novel together in serial form during November 2006. The project is based on the idea started by the National Novel Writing Month. Chapter 26. Written and recorded by Catherine Eastman. Trevor sighed and ran his fingers through his hair. All right, all right, you've got me. He gave his twin a mournful look. But just think, all that lovely information. Tracy crossed her arms and looked at him meaningfully. He threw up his hands in mock resignation. Righto. If we destroy the data, we effectively perform a lobotomy on global. And the faster we do that, the faster that whole problem goes away. Man, he muttered, what I wouldn't give to have life be simple again. But I need more time, he said, as Tracy came over and hugged him. From what I recall, and I'm not certain how much of that recollection is real, their structure looked like a real bugger to get into. "'Grandmother,' he stood and bowed to her, "'may I have access to a networked computer, some time, and some more of your marvellous tea?' Theresia stood as well and curtsied in return. "'Of course, Trevor, dear. You may use my office, and I'll have Pierre prepare another pot of tea for your private use.' Her eyes twinkled at the unlikely ceremoniousness of the conversation. "'But do hurry.' for all our sakes. She seated herself once more. Tracy and I will remain here. There are other issues that must be discussed. Our unexpected guest, for one. She turned her head, gazing out the window, while her fingers tapped idly on the arm of her chair. Not surprisingly, Fulvia found the door locked. The knob could not be turned, and pushing and pulling at the door were equally ineffective. She gave the door a harder shove, with no effect. The mild exertion caused her head to pound with a pain that surprised her. Ow! she thought, as her newly roiling stomach added to her discomfort. Slowly and carefully she returned to the bed and lay down once more. Soft these people might be. Stupid, at least to the extent of taking somebody prisoner and then failing to close them in properly, they weren't. As she lay back, she tried to remember just what had happened. At the beginning of this mission, you three had told her that Trevor had a document that was important to the Knights of Malta, the old hospitaler's group that was forever nipping at Global's heels. Her job was to either deliver the document to him or to destroy it. She'd been getting more and more frustrated with Trevor as time had passed, when she questioned him, with or without her charming little rod, she got the strangest mix of sense and nonsense out of him. Trevor had confirmed the existence of this document, and had insisted that it was with a Professor Prajak. Fulvia hadn't recognized the name, but that didn't matter. Google had confirmed the existence of this man and his linguistic capabilities. But even that much real information had been hard won. 
Trevor had spent a great deal of time trying to introduce Fulvia to his pet chinchilla, a non-existent pet, and he'd frequently stop dead in his tracks, look up with a frightened stare, and shout, Hazel! Hazel, where are you? Fulvia sighed, annoyed in recollection. He'd led them to Prague first. Getting to Prague had been a bit more complicated than she would have liked. She'd gotten so annoyed with Trevor that she had failed to conceal her pistol properly in her luggage, and had had a run-in with airport security as a result. Beaning the solitary guard with her metal rod had been the quickest and easiest way to escape and return to the plane. Shortly after arriving in Prague, Trevor had insisted that Prajak was on a speaking tour, and that he would keep this document with him as he travelled because of its importance. She'd taken Trevor back to their shared hotel room at that point, and applied a bit of pressure to him, to emphasize how important it was that he be open and honest with her regarding the document. Trevor didn't change his story, though. So they'd then flown to New York, the first stop on this supposed speaking tour. Instead of heading directly to NYU, Trevor had brought them to Central Park, continuing to mutter about his stupid chinchilla and needing to feed it. He'd started minutely examining the grass at the edge of the lake, getting down on his hands and knees and startling the ducks congregated there. Fortunately, it was a weekday morning around ten, and there were essentially no human passers-by to notice his odd behavior, except for the homeless men sitting in a group by a nearby tree. From the fragments of their conversation that she could hear, Fulvia figured Trevor's behavior wouldn't disturb them in the least. She'd taken a moment to call you three, informing him of Trevor's odd behavior and the difficulty she was encountering in retrieving the document. You three had brushed away her explanations. Just get the document. That's what matters. I don't care what it takes. You can deal with Trevor in any way you like once you've got it. The permission had pleased her, causing her lips to curl in a vulpine grin as she snapped the cell phone shut and returned it to her purse. And then? A sudden sharp pain in the side of her neck. She reached up and felt the tiny needle sticking there, even as she slumped quietly forward. At the edge of her vision, she saw one of the homeless men standing up from a crouched position, sticking something vaguely pencil-shaped in a pocket and running towards Trevor. She must have passed out completely, for she remembered nothing more until awakening here. Trevor spent the next two hours searching through the incomprehensibly vast global database he wasn't looking at the specific pieces of information, or at least he was trying not to. But it was hard to not notice, for example, someone's link to a private bank account in Switzerland that was being used to buy works of art on the black market. He was searching for an overarching structure to the thing, something that would give him a clue as to where the weak point was and how to exploit it. Once he found that keyhole, one little weak point, he could write a relatively simple script that would overwrite the whole thing quite efficiently, and the whole house of cards would come tumbling down. If this had been a database designed by an average programmer, it would have been a series of nested arrays, 
the top level of the array, would contain elements that each represented a particular person. Each element of that array would point to a new array, with pointers to different types of data about that person, one for vital stats, one for photographs, one for things that the person had created, etc. Each one of the pointers would then point to an array containing the actual information in that particular category. Depending on how detailed the designer wished to get in their categorizations, the arrays could nest downwards practically forever. You could have Joe Somebody, Created Works, Media, Pencil, Representational, Object Represented, Animal, Animal Represented, Dog, as six vertical layers to describe a pencil drawing that a person had done of a dog. There would probably be a branch off from the created works level to describe the age the person had been and the location where the drawing had been made. That was if the database had been designed by an average programmer. This clearly wasn't. Here, pieces of data about certain individuals had been linked directly to pieces of data of other individuals that were, as far as he could tell, almost entirely unrelated. Instead of predictable branchings, links ran complicated circles around each other in labyrinthine rabbit-worn confusion. Rabbits. The chinchilla nuzzled gently at his ear as the kittens played under the desk. Tracy ran her hand through her hair, in unconscious imitation of her twin. "'Do we have to deal with her?' she said, a bit plaintively. "'Can't we just, I don't know, dump her in the river without a life-jacket?' While she had never even seen the woman, she disliked her thoroughly from everything she'd heard of Fulvia's activity regarding her brother. "'Truth be told, I'm kind of sorry that Gerhardt brought her in when he rescued Trevor. But I suppose we couldn't just leave her there.' she sighed. Theresia sank back in her chair. "'Ne fais pas du mal,' she said softly. "'We couldn't just dump her in the river. I understand the temptation, of course. Fulvia is an example of some of the darkest instincts in humanity, instincts that I wish could be entirely eradicated. But no guns, no violence. Ne fais pas du mal.' She leaned her head against her hand. However, doing no wrong does not mean not doing justice, and I think I know someone who can help us there. She pressed the button on her bracelet. Pierre, could you place a call to Emily and see if she can come by on her lunch break or after work? Tracy asked, Who's Emily? A friend. A friend who was a member of the Order, and who works for justice. Another pot of tea, and some pretty good pasta, had sharpened Trevor and put him back on the chase. Now, where was that wascally wabbit? He leaned back and considered. There were a couple of jobs to do here, really. One was to try to gain administrative-level access. If he could do that, then he could go at the database from the inside out, which would likely be the fastest and surest way to eradicate it. At the admin level, he might also be able to determine whether and how often Global made backups of the database. There was so much information, he couldn't imagine anyone not backing such a thing up. The database wasn't terabytes of information. It was probably into exabyte territory, a thousand million gigabytes. 
the sheer amount of space the backups would take up might indicate that relatively few archives were kept if he was lucky. If he didn't manage to corrupt the inevitable backups as well, mangling the active database wouldn't do much good. If he was unable to gain administrative access, he could write a program that would continuously rewrite entries in the active database and gradually corrupt the entire thing. That method would probably take days to complete. He could set multiple copies of the program running at once, but even that would be slow, and it wouldn't be able to do anything about backups. Furthermore, none of his coding efforts would do anything to tapes or other hard media that might be stored off the network. Only physical damage could deal with those physical backups, wherever they were. He idly scanned more entries, following the crosslinks and hoping that some pattern would emerge. Adams Eileen. Lover of music. Invented elastic band. Coconut milk used in mother's recipe changed to dairy milk in 1973. Entrepreneur in small-town America. He shook his head. The descriptors weren't even all related to this Eileen Adams person. Each of them referred to totally separate individuals. Why had they been indexed this way? Why? The chinchilla insistently rubbed, then nibbled at the choicest words. Adams. Lover. Invented. Coconut. Entrepreneur. A. L. I. C. E. Emily arrived in mid-afternoon. I'm working the 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift now, she explained. Short, stout, and with a no-nonsense look about her, she wore a uniform similar to that of the New York Police Department, but where the badge was normally worn, she wore a pin that depicted a globe surrounded by olive leaves, with a Libra-type balance partially hidden behind it, and a sword piercing the globe. The legend, Interpol, was written at the lower edge of the globe. "'So, you've got someone you think might be of interest to us?' she addressed Theresia. The old woman nodded. "'I believe that you have a red notice out for one Fulvia Rossi?' Emily crossed her arms, an interested look on her plain face. "'We do indeed. She attacked a security guard in Malta International Airport. That's equivalent to a federal crime here in the States.' She then fled the country, which is grounds for extradition. The whole thing was recorded on a hidden security camera. And she left this. Emily took out a folded, slightly tattered paper. In the security room. An overdue bill for some handyman tools. With name, address, etc. She frowned at the paper. Including one strange item. One solid metal rod, twelve inches. I don't think she was planning to use that in a plumbing project. She put the paper back in her pocket. The Maltese authorities are definitely interested in having her returned to their care. You've got her here. Theresia smiled and rose from her chair. I know that you folks don't generally interfere in anything that might be connected to religious or military activities, but I thought you might be willing to take her off our hands for us. In addition to the harm you know about, we may be able to provide a witness to testify against her in a court of law with regards to Article 5 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
Emily smiled. Ooh, Article Five: Torture and inhumane, cruel, or degrading treatment. So this Fulvia person would definitely not qualify for employment in my upstanding agency. Tracy nodded agreement, knowing that the Interpol Constitution laid out the rule of taking actions within the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Naturally, it made sense that Interpol's employees would have that document memorized. Theresia nodded. Shall I take you down to her? Fulvia felt better after she had lain down for a while. She took another turn around the room, examining her surroundings more closely. She wiggled experimentally at the iron bars at the small window near the ceiling. Again, unsurprisingly, they remained firm. The toilet was both functional and clean, and she refreshed herself at the sink. The water from the tap was even drinkable, and a thick shatter-resistant plastic cup had been thoughtfully provided. She walked carefully around the perimeter, and noticed that her designer purse had been casually left on the floor, leaning against the legs of the small table. Her purse! Oh, these people were soft! She couldn't imagine Global ever making that kind of error. Quickly, she riffled through the bag. Her metal rod had been confiscated, as had the lockpicks that were standard issue to all Global agents, but her captors, whoever they were, the sillies, had left her cell phone in the purse. She quickly retrieved the phone and turned it on, dialing a well-known number as soon as the phone received a signal. She looked around once more and decided that she couldn't absolutely eliminate the possibility that her prison was bugged. Fine, she'd speak in code. She waited impatiently as the phone rang. At last, a man's voice answered. You three. Hi, it's Fulvia. That was code number one. While global agents knew the names of the agents they worked with, an agent never identified him or herself by name to their supervisor over the phone, unless they were in trouble. Is mom or dad home? That was the second code, indicating that an agent was likely in more trouble than they could handle alone and needed help. Fulvia. The man's voice had an oddly flat quality to it. It carried no overtones of concern. None at all. For heaven's sake, wasn't he worried? She thought she'd given him a good time that night, good enough that he'd have some personal interest in her, and she'd seen hard physical evidence that he'd quite liked her little games. Yes, what can I tell you? Code, I might be being overheard. Mentally, she added, you twit. Fulvia, you remember that Top had taken an interest in your mission? Yes, of course I remember. She chewed her fingernails. Top is not pleased. Oh, dear. This was not good. Er, no? No, and neither am I. She put on her very best abashed vocal tone. I'm sorry. Really, I am. I'm still working, though. Won't you work with me? Code. Cut the garbage and get me out of here. Top has determined that you are no longer useful to us, Fulvia Rossi. You have failed in your mission. 
Trevor Ames has secured the document and kept it out of our reach. Further, there is a suspicious user in the database. The security risk to Global is tremendous. You failed. Fulvia was startled enough that she broke her code cover. In the database? Trevor? She realized that she was babbling, and took hold of herself. You have failed, Fulvia. Global cannot afford to take care of agents who are incapable of caring for Global. But, but... Back to babbling, in an incoherent panic, Global was abandoning her. What about us? Don't you know I would do anything for you? Normally, that would be lying through her teeth, but at the moment it was close to the truth. You're on your own, Fulvia Rossi. The voice continued its flat affect to the very end, almost as if it had been spoken by a machine. Goodbye. Global broke the connection. Fulvia stared at the phone in growing horror. Trevor followed the white rabbit. He wrote a quick script that would grab the text of Alice in Wonderland from the Gutenberg project and feed it to the database interface, and something in there would be the administrative password. He was certain of it. Meanwhile, there were other things with which he could occupy himself. For one thing, there was one particular individual that he wanted to look up. It wouldn't hurt the person. What possible harm could come of viewing detailed information of someone who had died? He opened a new login to the database. Query? Rebecca Sharp. The entry had pages of information, much of which he was familiar with. Still, there were the small treasures that Rebecca had never shown him, or had lost or discarded before meeting him. Drawings and poems from her early school years, including one of her goldfish back in second grade. Fishy. He smiled, recalling the story she'd told him about finding Fishy flapping about on the living-room rug after a mighty leap out of his bowl. Happily, Fishy had survived the encounter with dry land. There were even some voice recordings— Rebecca ordering a pizza with extra cheese and mushrooms, Rebecca calling her credit card company to ask about a strange charge on her bill, Rebecca calling him to arrange a dinner together. He paged through the entry, reveling in memory. Ten minutes later, he came across another document he'd never seen. It was a letter, and it caught his attention immediately. Dear Trevor, it started, I feel almost silly writing this. This is one of those beloved I am dead letters that comes up in overly dramatic Victorian novels. But I still wanted to write it, to leave you a last message in case it's ever needed. If you're reading this, then through some random act of chance, I have died. I don't know how, obviously. You may not know either. Call me a victim of circumstances if it makes it easier for you. I never meant to leave you. I always meant to love you from nearly the instant that we met back at Cambridge. I did love you then, and I still do. Yes, dear heart, even now I'm sure I must, for I would not be myself if I did not love you. Please don't blame yourself because I'm dead. Perhaps I was coming to see you. Perhaps we were walking to class together. 
perhaps, perhaps. It doesn't matter what we were doing. What matters is that we were, and were together. Think of me. Think of us together, and remember the joy that we had together. Remember me when you read the poems and books we read aloud together, when you walk the paths we walked together. Even though you think of me, do not rush to meet me. Live, dear Trevor. Live, and take in the joys that are still yours. Tell me about them, if you like. I'm sure I'll be listening. You hold my heart, dearest, now and forever. In Aeternum, Rebecca A single tear coursed down Trevor's cheek. He copied and pasted the text into a new document and hit print. As it printed, he recited from memory the last stanza of the poem To One in Paradise by Edgar Allan Poe. And all my days are trances, and all my nightly dreams are where thy gray eye glances, and where thy footstep gleams, in what ethereal dances, by what eternal streams. Someone on LibriVox had recently made a recording of a poem in memory of a pet who had died. He rather thought that, once he had his life back, he'd record that poem in her memory, perhaps as part of a special collection. That way, his memory of her would be propagated forever, or close to it anyway. He looked across at the other window, where the password hunt had successfully completed. Down the rabbit hole, was the key phrase, apparently. He snorted at the relative simplicity of the passphrase. Good, he could do his real work now. Over the next hour, he wrote three different scripts. The first was designed to slowly eat away at the backups of new entries to the database that were captured nightly. The database was far too big to back up the entire thing on any regular basis. That was called Caterpillar, forever eating at the magic mushroom and polluting the surrounding air with his hookah smoke. Caterpillar would get run regardless, and should be started soon, frankly. The second script was called eat me. It acted like a mutagen to the keys in the database table, and would scramble them. Individual pieces of information would remain intact, but their interrelationships would be completely destroyed. The third script was called Drink Me. This script was effectively a cup filled with leaf water, overwriting every entry in every table, replicating itself as it went so as to do the job relatively quickly. He opened a new command line in the directory with the database. Command. Run Caterpillar. His finger hovered over the return key. End of chapter 26. Recorded by Catherine Eastman on November 27, 2006, in Redwood City, California.